Welcome to a New York Minute in History. I'm Devin Lander, the New York State Historian. On this episode, we mark the 100th anniversary of a law that was unique to New York, the Local Government Historians Law. Later on, we'll hear exactly what it is local historians do throughout the state. But first, some background. The story of the Local Government Historians Law began in 1916 with the appointment of James Sullivan as New York State Historian. Sullivan was a Ph.D. in history from Harvard University and was very concerned about the state of local municipal records across New York. You have to realize that at this time there was no New York State archives, there were no local government records managers, things like that. Municipalities were responsible for their historic records and their town and village records, but there was no law saying that they had to keep them or what condition they were kept in. Sullivan realized quickly that municipal records were being destroyed uh, at a rather abrupt rate, sometimes taken out back and burned, literally. So he had a concern related to the state of historical records across New York State, and he saw a void at the local level. There was no one in local office who was responsible for a town or village's municipality's historic records. In November 1918, Sullivan read an op-ed in the Utica Daily Press that was in support of a bill that was being introduced by Assemblyman Lewis M. Martin that would permit municipalities in the state to appoint a local government historian whose duty would be to preserve the histories of their area. Sullivan immediately sent a letter to Assemblyman Martin in support of this bill, adding that he would help construct the language for the bill and that he would support it in any way uh, he could in Albany. Martin replied to Sullivan, by saying that he would welcome his support and asking the state historian to draft language for the local government historian's law, which Sullivan did. He constructed uh, point by point the, the outline of the bill, what it should do, the duties of the local historians to preserve their municipal records, to preserve the history of their, their locality by publishing, writing, teaching about history. After some back and forth between Sullivan and Martin, the bill was introduced in January of 1919. During the winter and early spring of 1919, as the bill moved steadily through the committees in the legislature, Sullivan set to work gathering support for Martin's legislation. He conducted outreach to historical societies across the state to get their buy-in, sent letters of support to the press, and moved to have the New York State Historical Association, of which he was a trustee, issue a statement of support for the bill. The bill passed both houses of the legislature and was signed into law by Governor Al Smith on April 11, 1919. One of the first things that Sullivan called upon local historians to do was collect and send copies to him of materials related to their municipality's role in World War I. This task resulted in an extremely rich collection of documents, photographs, and personal memoirs of the war effort in most communities across the state. The collection is preserved today in the New York State Archives. In the decades that followed the enactment of the 1919 law, county and borough historians were added to the ranks of local historians, and in total they number in the hundreds. And today, 100 years later, these dedicated local government historians continue to conduct their important work across New York State. further celebrate the state's local government historian's law, we're joined by two of my colleagues. Lauren Roberts is a historian for Saratoga County, and John Shear is a town historian for Clifton Park, which is in Saratoga County. Lauren and John, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having us. Glad to be here. Lauren, let's start with you. When and how did you become the Saratoga County historian? I've actually always been interested in history, especially local history. I went to Skidmore College in Saratoga Springs, and I graduated with a dual degree in American Studies, which is kind of like interdisciplinary American history, and anthropology. So studying 
people and their cultures mixed with American history uh, was kind of my forte. And then I went on to get my master's degree in public history from SUNY Albany. And from there, I started working uh, for a local archaeologist. And through that research, I met a lot of people in the local history community. And one of those people that I met was the former Saratoga County historian. I frequented the office looking at historic maps and uh, history of the people in the county. And then when the job came open, I applied to become Saratoga County historian in 2009. So I've been county historian for just about 10 years now. John, what about you? How did you become Clifton Park Town Historian? Uh, I became Clifton Park Town Historian in 1978. I remember it well because uh, uh, I was fairly young compared to many other town historians, and people would always remark on that. They would say, oh, you can't be the town historian. <laughs> they don't say that anymore. Uh, <laughs> I mean, history was my bag. I graduated from the Cooperstown Graduate Program in Museum Training and American Folklife, and I was working at the New York State Museum at the time. We moved to Clifton Park in 1971, and I first got involved by being co-chair of our Bicentennial Commission. That's the Bicentennial of the American Revolution. And uh, that start, we started preparing for that, I think it was in 1974. And so we had committee meetings, we planned events, uh, publications that we did, et cetera. We became a bicentennial community. And we, uh, we followed through several years after the actual bicentennial. And so when the town needed a historian in 1978, I guess they thought I was a logical choice. <laughs> John, can you tell us a little bit about what you do as a town historian? Can you just walk us through some of the projects you've worked on over the years and what your kind of daily activity is like? Uh, Sure. Uh, I think uh, most of all, the job is to interpret the history for the people who live in the community and highlight the unique visible history heritage of the town that makes the community unique. Uh, So I do a lot of research on the history of the town, and I do newspaper articles to get that information out to the public. Now I guess there's other means like blogs and Facebook, et cetera, but when I started it was mostly newspaper articles. And I've written several uh, histories of the town. Uh, the first one was written for the Bicentennial Celebration in 1975. Uh, and I've written a couple other histories uh, since then. also get involved in preservation because the historian is really the go-to person uh, for history in, in the town. And... Uh, uh, so we're involved, particularly in Clifton Park, which is a rapidly developing town. So we record, uh, we have our own historic register, and we record buildings. We, uh, I was instrumental in forming a historic preservation commission, so work through that. We put up historic markers so that people realize what they're passing by every day and that it's an important historical site. It's important because these the people in the community are your con, your constituents. So what you want to do, you want to make them aware of the history that's around. You want to make them aware of the landmarks in the community and how important they are so that when you want to save a building, perhaps a, from a developer, you have people come to your defense in, in terms of saving the building. I also do tours, uh, walking tours of the Fisher Ferry Historic District. Uh, we, we have a National Register Historic District. We also have 10 places in town on the National Register, as well as our own uh, register. So, you know, historians are involved in, in many aspects of, of town history. In fact, I'm doing—I just did a bus tour out to— uh, to uh, Camillus and Canastota to study the canal remains there. We had tours of that. This is a bus tour for the town because we have a section of the canal that goes through our town. Mm. 
and uh, wanted to show folks, you know, what what a restored section looked like, and then to learn about what we have. Uh, I do walking tour uh, walking tours of our Erie Canal remains. Anything that deals with history, we get involved with. That's great. A variety of things at the town level. Lauren, what about as county historian? Can you tell us a little bit about your duties as county historian and how that may be uh, the same as what John does or different than what a town or village historian would do? Absolutely. So we do some of the same work that town historians do. Uh, Many of the things that John mentioned, we do a lot of research and writing. I spend a lot of my time doing public presentation, Um, not just to community groups, but also to get into the schools and um, other history groups that may need some help in learning how to maybe research their house history. We have genealogy groups that come in and want to know, how do you look up a vital record? How do you find a deed from 1795? And we can help in those capacities. Um, We also work with historic preservation. We do a lot of organization of historians. So I think of myself as kind of an umbrella of the the municipal historians in Saratoga County. I actually hold two meetings a year, one in the fall, one in the spring, and all of the historians from the municipalities in Saratoga County come to my office and we meet and talk about upcoming events. We talk about issues that we're having in our own offices, maybe cemetery issues or Perhaps somebody found a new website that is helpful in research, historic maps, things like that. And any kind of problems that we might be having that someone else might be able to help with ideas. How, how did you celebrate your bicentennial? Um, how did you form a historic preservation commission? How is it working in your town? How do you reach out to your elected officials to increase your budget? What's your salary? You know, how much are you getting paid as opposed to how much other people in your county are getting paid? Lauren reminded me that this is a big part of the job is doing public presentations, uh, PowerPoint presentations. I have about 20 different ones that I give at different times. Uh, Also, some of the more interesting things that we do is I get involved with the local theater group. And uh, when I do cemetery tours, we have uh, people play the deceased, and so we visit them behind their uh, their gravestone, which is a lot of fun. We've also put together, worked with them in putting together a couple historical plays about the history of, of our town. So, you know, all sorts of things that you get involved with. Both of you mentioned your role with your local municipal government, and you mentioned that you were appointed by your, your local town board and the county legislature, in the case of Saratoga County. Can you tell us a little bit about your actions with your appointing uh, entity and uh, interactions with them and how, how you work together to, uh, to facilitate discussions on history and preservation and things like that? John, I know you've done a lot in Clifton Park. I will say that my town is very supportive of history and... Uh, <laughs> Almost anything I ask for, I, I get, uh, which is nice. Uh, uh, and uh, it's an educational process. I mentioned educating the residents about the history, but it's also e- uh, educating the town board and the planning board. And it, it has taken a long time to make them understand, you know, why history, why landmarks are important. And... and uh, uh, now they're, as I say, very, very supportive. We have this preservation commission, and we have a town councilman uh, on the preservation commission, and we also have someone from the planning board on our preservation commission. Uh, I do presentations to the town board on several occasions, and uh, they're always very open to having me do these presentations and are usually very interested and uh, what I'm doing. And also, you know, in terms of celebrating different anniversaries, they usually come to me and, and ask for that kind of information. 
So I work very closely with the with the board, and as I say, we even have representations of the board on our on our preservation commission. If you could give advice to your colleagues, uh, maybe somebody who's new at, at being appointed to town historian, what would your advice be as far as establishing that relationship with their appointing an entity? You mentioned it took you a while to get where you are now, obviously. So what, what advice would you give your colleagues? Be visible. <laughs> Do things. <laughs> and and make, make yourself indispensable. Uh, don't don't hide behind a desk and you know answer genealogical inquiries. Do things that make an impact on your community, and and give you exposure. Um, you know that's that's and that, I think that's what's important. Once you you know once you become a valuable asset to the town, then they recognize that, and you become part of the town government, not not just somebody that's. A remote satellite of the town, you know. You actually get on their, on their directory. You put them down as town historian, et cetera. So, and 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 also, I I think it's important to develop a personal relationship with uh, not only members of the town board but the planning board. Be a part of the town government and uh, a viable part of the town government. I think that's really important. And then you can ask for things in your budget. Uh, because they see that you're doing things and it's and they're getting something in return for the money that they're putting into to your programs. Lauren, what about as county historian? Can you walk us through your relationship with the county legislature? Uh, do you present uh, reports to them frequently? What What's the interaction like there? So my interaction is is a little bit different than John's because I have 22 supervisors from across the county that I am responsible to and I I too have to second how important it is to make your presence known and let them know what you're doing for the county. Uh, we have in Saratoga County, uh, the northern end of the county is very different from the southern end of the county, uh, population-wise, industry-wise. So it's not as if one size fits all. The supervisors from Day, Edinburgh, and Hadley are dealing with much different issues than Clifton Park, Half Moon, City of Saratoga Springs. So you need to Make yourself available to all of the different supervisors so that everybody has a chance to showcase their history. I would say presenting to the supervisors any chance you get is very important because a lot of them don't know what a historian does. Maybe not just a town historian, but they don't know what a county historian does. They might think, well, I already have a historian in my town. Why do we need a county historian? Mm. And you can take that um, information and, and show them what the collections are. When I first started 10 years ago, uh, I don't think any of the sitting supervisors had ever visited the historian's office. Mm. Um, now there are several who have been to see where my office is, what my collection consists of. They know my face because I present to them at board meetings. If I ask for money to preserve a document in the collection's history, then I make sure after that preservation has been done to bring that up to them and show them this is where the money went. This is what the document looked like now that we've conserved it. Here, this this will be good for another 50, 100 years, whatever it is. The other good way to show them what you're doing is by submitting your annual report, which, yes, Devin, we also submit a copy to you. But I think it's important for us to either read out loud our annual report to our appointing body or at least submit it to, in my case, the chairman of the Board of Supervisors. The, that kind of report tells them what you're doing and why you're valuable to your community, whether it's city, village, town, or county. I'm not sure that I've seen a report from Clifton Park lately. <laughs> I, I do my annual report, and I prevent and I present it to the town board orally every year. And uh, yeah, that's right. And once once I give my report to the town board, I say, ah, 
done for another year. I always forget to mail my reports, but I have them. I will send you the ones <laughs> that I neglected to send you. But I also want to point out that you want to participate in town events. I mean, if you have a Fourth of July celebration or uh, a, a, a centennial celebration or, you know, anything like that, we have we celebrate Farm Fest. So I always have a presence at those events. Also, I do exhibits or you know programs in con- in conjunction with those events, so that you're present. We also have a uh, winter festival, and uh, you know so I, I participate in that also. If you're just there to answer questions from people, you know at least you're there. Visibility is key for these positions. Interacting not only with your appointing entity but uh, the community that actually exists there and that you're there to serve is, right. is vital. And you can also, I mean, I get a lot of requests from people who own old houses, you know, who who may, who may built them, who lived there, etc. So that's another, I provide that information. We get a lot of people from out of town looking for family history and for places where their, their ancestors once lived in town. And... Uh, uh, that's sort of uh, an interesting thing because you, usually you're able to, to help them and they go away very happy. Let's talk a little bit about the relationship between uh, the state museum and the state historian and local historians. John, you were a senior historian at the New York State Museum for several years. Can you <laughs> tell us a little bit about uh, what you witnessed and the interaction between the work you did as a as a state museum employee and a senior historian at the museum and the local historians. Yes. Uh, I was there actually for 42 years. <laughs> I started there in 1967 when it was known as the Office of State History, and I see you're bringing that name uh, back into the picture, which yes. is great. But it was indeed the Office of State History, and it included uh, not only the museum, but we had uh, a historic as a historic historian aspect of the office, uh, a staff who actually went out and uh, coordinated things with the historians throughout the state. Uh, and uh, even though I worked for the museum, I got brought into that because we did programs. We would go out at various colleges throughout the state and uh, put together educational programs for the historians. And uh, I would give uh, programs on how to identify antiques or uh, historical artifacts. And some of my colleagues would talk on different subjects. So we would travel with the historians uh, who were part of the office and do that. Um, Eventually, however, uh, the museum sort of wagged the the animal because we were building the new museum at the time. The museum opened in 1976 Mm -hmm. during the bicentennial. It was the last building to be completed in the Empire State Plaza. And uh, the acquisition of artifacts and the the writing uh, of exhibits started to be the main thing. Uh, Our office also had the Bicentennial Commission uh, Len Tucker was the state historian at the time, and uh, I remember I was just we were just getting out of the Cooperstown graduate program, and he actually came out and hired about five or six of us to come to work at the museum. And uh, so, yeah, so there was the Bicentennial Commission. There was a section of the office that dealt solely with historians, uh, and uh, so I got to travel around with them a bit. And uh, but eventually, because because the museum seemed to be the most important aspect of the office, the Office of State History got dropped. The historian section of the office, except for one person, uh, got dropped, and uh, and we became the division of anthropolo- what was it historical and anthropological services. Mm-hmm. We changed the name of the office, mm-hmm. and. Uh, then after the museum opened, uh, again, we did have somebody on staff who still dealt with historians. I remember we actually put out a, a book, um, an annual publication that listed all of the research in progress on New York State history. Mm-hmm. 
not only in progress, but the things that had been published at that during that year on New York State history. And it is a pretty, pretty good-sized book, too. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we would do that every year. Well, eventually that office got eliminated also. Uh, so, you know, it's the office has developed, and it's interesting to see it now sort of revert to what it was back in 1967 when I first got there. I think it's great because, you know, it's all history. Yeah. And, 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 well, that's and, the hope is that, um, you know, we can uh, transform the office into uh, more like what it was um, in those days. Of course, uh, you know, it's a process, and, and we do have support at the leadership level for for these changes. So it's it's ongoing. But uh, as with, uh, as you mentioned, John, with your, your own municipality, um, it's much the same at the state level. Uh, we have to be constantly making the case as to why these things are valuable, why the Office of State Historian is valuable, why the state museum should, should focus on history, and on and on and on. So it's a continuing process. And, and it, the budget had a lot to do with it also. And, it, and it's interesting. I've been there long enough to see things, uh, you know, wane and then advance. Uh, uh, they cut the staff down, and then eventually it's built up again. Mm-hmm. And there were cycles like that all during the time that I was there. Let's talk about other ways to reach audiences. We're doing a podcast as we speak. This is a relatively new form of media, although it's obviously tied to radio, and radio's been around a long time, but this is a type of radio program that you can carry around in your pocket and listen to whenever you want. Historians, I think, are are activating more and more of the uh, multimedia technology that exists, podcasts, blogs, as John mentioned, the web, of course, social media. But recently, Lauren Roberts, Saratoga County historian, has gotten into the film business. Can you tell us about your project related to the great Sagandaga Lake and how that came about and what's next for you as a filmmaker? Boy, that's a, <laughs> that's a loaded question, Devin. This may be my first and only film. Um, back in 2015, I was contacted by the Great Sacandaga Lake Advisory Council, who was interested in making a film on the creation of the Great Sacandaga Lake. So for those people who don't know, the Great Sacandaga Lake was created as a reservoir in 1930 to prevent flooding downstream on the Hudson River. Every spring, there would be damaging floods along the Hudson. So basically, the state wanted to create a reservoir to be able to hold back that water, and they could choose to let out the water as it was needed during the spring and summer months when the when it was dry and when it was needed for hydropower in industry down along the Hudson. So I was contacted by the Great Sacandaga Lake Advisory Council, and I worked with a team of two other people. One was a local documentarian. His name was Peter Pape, and he's been a local filmmaker uh, for quite a long time. He actually worked on a project based on the Sacandaga back in the 1980s. And the other person was Jason Kemper, who is the director of Saratoga County Planning. He is also the treasurer of the Great Sacandaga Lake Advisory Council, which is how we got involved. The project took about two years. We produced a one hour and 20 minute documentary on the story of how the reservoir was created, how it affected the local people who were displaced from their homes when the land was flooded. There were about 1,200 parcels taken by eminent domain in order to create this reservoir. And at the end of the film, we try to bring it full circle so that you can see what the reservoir is like today. Uh, They actually changed the name from Sacandaga Reservoir to the Great Sacandaga Lake because it sounds uh, much more lovely when you're trying to increase tourism in the area, which is really what dominates the economy now. And we've had great success with the film. Uh, I think we've sold around 5,000 copies of the film in a little under two years. Uh, We've done many, many showings of the film for local organizations and conferences. And we've gotten a lot of good feedback. 
uh, it was it was a really great project. I got to do some very interesting things. I climbed down inside the dam 100 feet below the surface, which was interesting. Uh, we got to send a dive team down to look at some of the underwater uh, relics that are still there. There were a couple of bridges that were left behind because they would have been deep down in the Sakandaga. Um, and also conducting the oral interviews with people who remembered what it was like before the lake was there. Uh, that was one of my favorite aspects of the film. It was what you would call a very peaceful valley of contented farmers. When I was a little girl, I heard them talking about uh, making a dam, and, and they were going to flood the valley. And I could think of the flood in the Bible, and I really had nightmares about that. There was little understanding of people who lived here that it made sense that they should be flooded out so that people downriver would not be flooded out. It was very hard to explain the greater good. I can understand. To them, it was tragic to have to move out of their homes. They had been used to a way of life that they could never have again, no matter where they went. All the people, they just hated the water, hated the lake, hated the idea of eminent domain coming in here and telling them what they, where they had to go. Everybody was scurrying around for deeds and their property and making settlements and no lawyers involved. They just said, there's a fair price and land was cheap. The two sides telling the story told two very different versions of what was happening. And each side could not relate to the rationale that was being promoted by the other side. The first contract for the construction of the reservoir was let in 1927. The dam was closed in 1930. Overall, the project was completed in a very short time period. And now you have this beautiful lake that attracts people and creates something in the way of a new industry that was really never intended and something that's really quite special, I think. We've done something on a much smaller scale, but I've networked with the library. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, the li when our library, the Clifton Park Half Moon Library, was built, when it opened 10 years ago, they had a history room, which was basically empty. So I had our town collection, which was filling up the vault in the uh, clerk's office, and she was anxious to get rid of the stuff uh, and some of the stuff which I had at home we'd place that on deposit at the library. And so I work out of the library. My, my office is there, and it's a great place because that's where people come mm -hmm. to do research. But what I wanted to also add was that it's been a wonderful partnership because they were able to get grants to catalog the entire collection. We have over 500 uh, historical images up online now. They got a grant for that, you know. And, and uh, one of the things that uh, uh, they did, I worked with them to do it, but I didn't have the, the knowledge, the technology knowledge to uh, accomplish this, was they did a little snippet on the Erie Canal in Clifton Park using historical photographs from our collection. And then I had done a lot of interviews back in the 1970s and 80s of people who remembered the canal. And so they, they used snippets of my interviews and put them in this multimedia presentation, and people can access it now through the library website. My grandfather was born in 1820, and he told me as a little boy, his father took him down to the canal to see its opening. From 1940 on, he boated on that Erie Canal and made many trips between uh, Troy and Buffalo. My father was born in 1862, and uh, in his early 20s, he started to work for the uh, state on the Erie Canal, and uh, spent 32, uh, 30 years with him. I uh, came along in 1890, so I've been here a while. 
And uh, when uh, I was six years old, uh, my father moved to uh, Block 19 and lived in the state house there for several years in order to be close to his work. Well, uh, I learned the vernacular of the boatman at that time, which wasn't too good. But uh, when I was about uh, 12 years old, uh, I began to learn how to operate uh, the locks. From that time on, uh, I was more or less uh, connected with the Erie Canal. But what did the canal boats haul? That, uh, did they haul? Yeah, what did they use the canal boats? Grain is a big item. Mm -hmm. Grain, fertilizer, hay, straw, wood, uh -huh. uh, was grain, there... molasses. Did you ever? And uh, the, uh, the grain, of course, that was in the hole. And uh, the wood, and the hay, and the straw was a tech load. And of course, they had to figure on the heights of the bridges, same as your uh, trails, uh, your uh, tractors going under your underpasses now. Mm -hmm. They had to do the same thing. Mm -hmm. And then holler, low bridge, everybody down, and they got to one of those. Oh, they really would. Oh, yeah. yeah I hear it in the song. But yeah. I <laughs> yeah. And at our place, we're just a half mile below, not 19. And That's right. And when they got there, they now rawr, rawr, draw the locks so the water would be down so they could go through. Oh, I see. Without a, without a hold up, sir. Devin, as you were saying, there are lots of ways with new technology to reach out to the public and let them know what we have digitizing our collections and making them available online, I think should be a priority for a lot of historians. As we know, John said before, we have a lot of people coming from out of town, emailing from uh, Washington State or a different country even, looking for ancestors, looking for property records, things like that. And by digitizing your records and putting them online, it makes it so much easier for people to access your collections and see what you have. And working with a library or working with uh, your historical society at the county, we're lucky enough to have an IT department who is willing to help put things online. Uh, we've recently digitized our oral history collection from the 1970s uh, around the bicentennial. Former Saratoga County historian Violet Dunn interviewed a lot of people who had lived in the county for a long time or had a connection to some, an important person in the county. And now I'm working with a couple of local institutions to have an oral history initiative. Our Saratoga County Historical Society, known as Brookside, the Saratoga Springs Public Library, and we have a history roundtable in Saratoga County now the Saratoga County History Roundtable, where we are digitizing collections that already exist as part one, and then hopefully as part two, we'll be collecting current interviews, uh, oral history interviews. And by putting these online, as John's done, you allow for a, a greater access. Many historians have limited office hours they're not always full-time positions, but having things online allows people to access them whenever they want to, whenever they're doing the research. So I think that emphasis really should be placed on making the collections as accessible as possible, and new technology certainly helps us do that. Many people that listen to this podcast are not historians, believe it or not. They're people who are interested in history, perhaps, or they're people that uh, want to know more about their state that they live in. Uh, what would be the most important thing for the public to know about their county historian, Lauren? Let's start with county historians. What's the most important thing people should know about their county historian? The most important thing to know is that we exist. 
that we are a resource for people who are interested in their history. We are a resource for municipal officials who want to use the history of their town to promote their town, to promote celebrations, to bring tourists in to look at historic sites, which brings money into the community, and you know, historic preservation, all of those things are good for community. They help us remember where we came from. They help shape where we're going. And, you know, people, we like it when people come and visit us. Uh, we also are interested in collecting the history of our community. Maybe you have some historic mm-hmm. photographs in your basement and you're going to throw them away. Contact your local historian. It may be something that they don't have a good record of and, and they would like to collect. And you don't always have to donate. You know, we're, now that we have scanning, it's much easier. You can bring in your photographs and scan them in, take your originals home the same day. And now that history will be passed on through municipal historians and future researchers will be able to use that. But I would say, you know, most importantly, find out where your county historian is, make an appointment to come in, do some research, look at their website, uh, follow them on social media or their blog, and find out what makes your town unique. Where, where is the most important historic site in your town? And um, involve children in it, too. It's important that the love of history starts young so that we can have historic preservation in our towns. We can have a, a preservation commission that we have elected officials who know the importance of our history. John, what would you say is the most important thing for the public to know about their town or village historians? All I can say is right on, Lauren, because <laughs> the same thing is true for municipal historians. People need to know that we exist and use us. Uh, I, I can think of a number of archaeological investigations that have gone on in our town uh, due to developments uh, or, or road construction. And I, <laughs> I found out, find out afterwards... Through the, they've redone research that I've already done because they <laughs> neglected to contact me as, as town historian. I could have saved them days of work. I had this information, but they neglected to contact me. So, you know, in New York State, municipalities and, and counties, they have historians make use of them. They have the information you need on history. Historians spend much of their time researching, as you both noted, among other duties, but research is the foundation, and all of us hope that someday we'll have one of those eureka moments where we uncover something that uh, no one else has found or, or a new way at, look, uh, at looking at something that people have looked at in the past. Uh, do either of you, uh, can you give us an example, or both of you give us an example of a moment where you had a eureka moment? Uh, well, I actually have a whole PowerPoint presentation on some of the more interesting things I've discovered in Clifton Park history. But I think one of the ones that affected me personally was uh, uh, the last historian. I got his file, and in the file was a f- 8x10 photograph of a sampler that was done in 1821 and, and uh, had the names of all of the students in the class who were learning how to do this needlepoint. And uh, looking at the sampler, it was done in 1821, and I figured out what school it was done at, a northwestern part of the town, because of the names of the students. And obviously the name in the students, the, these women, all married each other's brothers, so they became interrelated. And so I was able to do a little story on that. But the thing was, <laughs> one of the names on that sampler was one of my ancestors, and I had n- no idea that I had any kind of connection to Clifton Park history because they had come from Connecticut and settled in Edinburgh, town of Edinburgh. And I had no, th- but they must have lived in Clifton Park for a number of years before they went on up to, to Edinburgh. So that was quite an interesting thing. So then I wanted to find out where the original sampler was, which I did finally track it down. I know where it is today. And then, <laughs> just to make a, a short story longer, uh, <laughs> I one one afternoon, several several years after I wrote the article on the sampler, a friend of mine was down at the Schoharie Antique Show, 
and he discovered two more samplers from Saratoga, well, from Clifton Park. And he called me on the phone. He said, hey, I saw these two samplers at the Schoharie Antique Show. So I made a beeline for the Schoharie Antique Show. And uh, I was able to uh, acquire these for the town. And they were done by uh, the same family. And they were part of the same... So Esther Schauber and Anna Schauber samplers were at this uh, antique show. And the the Schauber house still stands. I have a daguerreotype of of the person who made the sampler, Esther Schauber, one of the samplers. And it it just puts together a kind of an an interesting interesting story. Lauren, what about you? I think... Every day I come up with a small eureka moment. Uh, A lot of times you're researching for other people who have asked questions and they've been looking for someone for so long and you find mention of a will that helps them connect an ancestor or become part of an organization like DAR or the Mayflower Society. Um, I had one gentleman who I, I helped Uh, make a link for him and he came from Canada and brought me flowers Mm -hmm. so I I remember that uh, day he was so excited to find this link in his ancestry Um, but I'm thinking now about a collection that came in in 2011 we call it the LaRue collection there's a family uh, that came from New Jersey in the 1770s and Joseph LaRue became the first justice of the peace for the town of Charlton when it was created in 1792. So in 2011, Linda LaRue, who still lives on that same farm, uh, brought me a box of documents, uh, 606 documents to be exact, that were mostly written in the 1700s. And we, she donated the collection to the office, which I think is a great thing because now many people are tempted to sell older documents on eBay or at antique shows when, uh, in my opinion, those kinds of collections are safer in the hands of municipal historians who are going to care for them and make them accessible to researchers. So Linda LaRue came and had this wonderful collection, which she decided to donate. And as we were going through them, we started to see military documents. They were orders from the 1780s, -hmm. American Revolution, uh, taking place in New York City. They were orders for a wagon master. He was in the quartermaster general's department. And I thought, wow, this is so cool. There's, you know, there's a, an American Revolution connection here that we can really you know, hang on to. Mm. And as we started looking at them, we noticed that they were talking about Staten Island and they were talking about areas in the Bronx. Um, as you know, the Americans weren't there for very long <laughs> during the American Revolution. They kind of kicked George Washington's army out pretty quickly. Uh, so we figured out eventually that this man was working for the British Army. Mm. And then we got to realize, I, I don't think that he could read or write. All of his legal documents have his X as his mark. Um, so perhaps he had someone reading his orders to him. But he eventually came up to Charlton after the revolution. His name was John Campbell. Um, so... Anyway, that you know, that's probably a quarter of the collection are his military documents that he saved all of these orders from when he was stationed near Fort Kniphausen, which um, was our Fort Washington before it was uh, taken over by the British. And uh, I think that's a pretty unique collection. Not only does it tell us about early Saratoga County because he's a judge, his docket is in there for the first about 10 years. We can see a glimpse of what Saratoga County was like at that time. Lots of the court cases deal with agricultural issues, um, sheep thieves, people stealing wood off of a wood lot, that kind of thing. But also we have this kind of gem of American Revolution documents as a part of the collection. So that's just one of the several interesting collections that we have in the office. There's nothing boring about being a historian. (laughs) Thank you both for uh, your time today and for your insights into your position. I very much appreciate you coming in. Thanks, Evan. Thank you.
Maybe you've wondered about how you're getting this podcast. Well, support for this program comes from the William G. Pomeroy Foundation, which helps people celebrate their community's history by providing grants for historic markers and plaques. You've probably heard of our New York State Historic Marker Grant Program, but did you know we also offer several other signage grant programs? Here in the Empire State and across the country, these programs include commemorating women's suffrage, historic canals, sites on the National Register of Historic Places, and folklore and legends. With all these options, there's never been a better time to apply. Since 2006, we funded over 840 signs across New York State and beyond, all the way to Alaska. Our grants are available to 501c3 organizations, nonprofit academic institutions, and municipalities. To apply for signage at no cost to you, or to learn more about the Foundation's grant programs, visit WGPFoundation.org. That's WGPFoundation.org. First of all, uh, Jerry Smith uh, started out a zillion years ago to be a social studies teacher and decided not to do that. Uh, amazingly, my parents told me I had to have a job, <laughs> took a civil service test and ended up uh, working for our public library, uh, where I told them I'd be there for a year and a half, but I was there for just under 41 years. And in the midst, our library director at the time was the Binghamton City Historian. And as director, uh, he didn't do much as Binghamton City Historian, but I was working in the reference department at the time. Uh, we would answer any of the inquiries that would come in uh, regarding somebody looking for a piece of information about Binghamton history or heritage. And he recommended he was going to step down that I be appointed Binghamton City Historian, and that was in 1984. And I held that position until January of 2019. So just about 35 years as that. Now, um, the job came with a, a whole $50 a year stipend, uh, which after a while the city even took away because they ran out of money. Uh, and in the interim, the, the Broome County Historian, Lawrence Bothwell, was going to leave the area uh, and recommended that I also be appointed Broome County Historian, and that was in 1988. So there again, I held that until January of 2019, so 31 years as County Historian. Uh, and I'd love to say that they had elegant uh, surroundings, but no, the City Historian was basically a closet with one electrical outlet. Uh, and a couple of bookcases and a file cabinet. And the city historian, accounting historian, excuse me, was in the basement of the Broome County Courthouse, which is an 1890s courthouse. Uh, and there was a stipend for that. It was only open a couple of hours a week. I had a deputy county historian. Uh, and at the time, I realized that it was important. This sort of fit into my, dovetailed into my full-time job at the library so that at the same moment they were starting discussion that we needed a new public library building our carnegie library was almost 100 years old we were 100 percent over capacity and the then library director and a push for a brand new public library saw that our county historic society which was at robertson museum the city historian the county historian and the library all did sort of pieces of the same thing they each had their own collections. They would answer inquiries. And he wondered if that if we were able to build a brand new building, could each agency agree to bring their collections together, uh, cooperate, everybody would retain ownership of their own materials, everybody would cooperate in the operation. And in fact, in fall of 2000, that's exactly what we did. We opened up the Broome County Local History and Genealogy Center on the second floor of the new library, we expanded into about 4,000 square feet of space. And we increased usage from slightly under 
a thousand a year if you combined all four in agencies in terms of usage. Uh, and now we average around 15,000 users a year. Uh, we've got a collection of 142,000 plus items. Uh, we still fulfill all the components of county and city historian, uh, but combining it, we found out we didn't have as much repetition and it's a full, well-rounded uh, collection that the public, that media, that school children, uh, university students can avail themselves of. And it seemed to be a great role uh, for me. I, I left the reference department and basically took over the operation of the center full time uh, until I retired this January. Tell us a little bit more about the work that you did over the years as both city and county historian. You mentioned the collection. Uh, you mentioned some public programming, answering yeah, well, questions. The work has evolved through the years. I mean, when I was first appointed, it was simple. Somebody would write a letter. Somebody would make a phone call and a few in-person inquiries uh, if somebody could find us in our various locations. What's evolved into is that we have, uh, we index our daily newspaper uh, for the genealogy now, I will be honest, of our usage, about 92 to 93% of our usage comes from people doing some sort of family history research. The other seven to 8% are true, I guess what you would call history research. So we index the daily newspaper, we copy the obituaries, we uh, maintain a, a vertical file collection of about mm, 50 to 70,000 uh, copies of articles that have been indexed dealing and going back, if possible, to the 1940s. Before that, it's been on microfilm. Of course, it's available on other sites like FultonHistory.com and such. Uh, we answer direct. I evolved so we opened up our hours of operation. We were all open sporadic hours. I mean, you had to find us on the right day and the right time, and that upset me. Working in a public library, we're supposed to be open when the public needs us so that uh, I was able, it's had to contract a little bit with budget cuts, but we were able to open up uh, six days out of the seven. Uh, it averages around 50 hours per week that we're open, open to the public. We have a web page. Uh, we certainly have telephone access. We even have fax. We still get one of those once in a while. And tremendous number of email inquiries from literally all over the world because we've answered questions from members of countries. Uh, then we made ourselves available to school groups for school trips to come in. In addition, I started doing public speaking because I saw that as my role as appointed historian. I've gone into countless schools, not as many as I would like. Uh, local organizations, not-for-profit agencies, uh, bringing people in for tours. In my 30-plus years as a historian, when I retired, we estimated it was close to 700 programs uh, I've given to the public. And then in recent years, I added in there a monthly radio show on an AM station here in Binghamton. Uh, we call Binghamton then, and people can call in with inquiries or questions or memories uh, and that sort of sort of freewheeling but it's very popular uh, and that evolved from there into writing two weekly columns for the presence on bulletin our local newspaper it, on Fridays it's called throwback series and it's historical photographs with captions that are based around a theme that gets about 10,000 readership on a weekly basis and on Saturdays is spanning time which has been running now for six years. And again, that gets 10 to 15,000 readership. In fact, the photo gallery had 193,000 hits electronically in a 12 month period because it's a very popular feature. Uh, as well as writing and publishing there for the newspaper, I've, my sixth book is coming out uh, later this summer uh, because it's the 100th anniversary of our historical society. So I've just written that for them. Uh, so I, I ended up doing the tenets of appointed historians of writing and publishing and certainly collecting uh, and making sure that those collections are kept. We have an archival vault in our local history center, as well as one for three-dimensional objects over at the Robertson Museum. What a career you've had in, in our field. That's a, the epitome of production. 
Um, let's talk a little bit about the Association of Public Historians of New York State, otherwise known as AFNES, uh, which is celebrating its 20th year this year. And you are a long-serving past president. Can you tell us a little about, about your role at AFNES and a little bit about the organization itself and how it came about and what it does? Sure. In the 1960s, two organizations were created. One was the Association of Municipal Historians of New York State, which represented the, the town, village, and city historians across the state. And then another one within about a year and a half of each other called the County Historians Association, which represented the 62 historians represented the, the 62 counties in New York State. Each of them for a while cooperated uh, with each other, and then there was a major split. Just about the time I was appointed in, in the mid-1980s, there was a, a split, a rift between the two organizations, and they went their separate ways. They used to have joint conferences, and then that sort of fell apart. About the late 1990s, the boards of both organizations realized that the, the personalities that had caused the rift had long since gone away and that the issues and problems that each organization represented were much more similar than they were dissimilar, and that by combining them, we would represent every municipality in New York State. Uh, we would be stronger both in terms of membership and in terms of finances. And so for about a period of a year and a half, we had a series of merger meetings spread out across the state usually in the capital area, uh, and that in 1999, uh, we set about going through a formal reincorporation or merger of both organizations. Um, I remember it well because I somehow was appointed secretary for that day. We, we spent seven and a half straight hours in uh, the State Museum going through every I and every T to be dotted and crossed as we rewrote the uh, incorporation for both organizations. And somehow by the end of the day, because it was a merger, there was no election of officers, there was an appointment. So I was appointed as the first president of AFNES, uh, which was our name that we, we settled upon. Uh, and we realized that the goal of the organization was to basically create classes of better historians doing better work, uh, training historians so that they had proper practices, that they, that they actually collected and preserved the history and heritage of their communities uh, by providing education. And over the last 20 years, I, I came back, I sat on the board in many capacities, uh, and then for a period of a number of years, I was uh, elected as the president of, of the association. Uh, unfortunately, at a time when they had run into extreme financial difficulties, we were basically bankrupt and owed a great deal of money. Uh, we had used a, another company and, and we had to go a different direction. So that we had to reinvent ourselves one more time uh, and come up with a standard operating procedures so that uh, luckily within about 16 months, we had paid off all the debt, we were, we were sound. Uh, and from that, it, it sort of gave us, reinvigorated us to try to create a series of 12 strong regions from across the state. In that region, there was a coordinator and a deputy coordinator. Every year, they were to hold at least one meeting because we realized that even though we have an annual conference, not every historian can get there to network, to learn, so that by bringing those regional meetings out to the members, there's a greater capacity for them to be able to get to a local or a regional meeting than maybe to a meeting in Albany or the next year it's in Buffalo. Uh, plus, uh, we publish a newsletter digitally on our website uh, four times a year. We've added a Facebook page. We have a Twitter presence. Uh, we've, we've tried to move into the 21st century. There's still a lot of work to be done. Uh, we've made a couple efforts of rewriting the historian's bill to correct some and update some of the language in there, but we haven't gotten that passed as yet. Uh, but the AFNES organization is strong. I would love to say we have every member, but we don't. We represent every appointed historian, uh, but our membership has remained strong. We're financially strong. 
we, we try to find content that is valuable to the appointed historians because if they're if they're better educated they can better serve their communities and that's that's one of the goals of AFNES. We'd like to close this episode with some personal news regarding our podcast team. Lauren Roberts, the Saratoga County historian you met on this episode, will be joining us on future episodes as a co-host. Thanks to Lauren, John Shear, and Jerry Smith for joining us on this episode. And thank you for listening to our New York Minute in History, a podcast about the history of New York and unique tales of New Yorkers. Stay tuned to wamcpodcast.org and the New York State Museum website for more episodes. A New York Minute in History is a production of the New York State Museum, WAMC Northeast Public Radio, and Archivist Media. Support for the project comes from the William G. Pomeroy Foundation. It is also funded in part by Humanities New York, with support from the National Endowment for the Humanities. Any views, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed in this podcast do not necessarily represent those of the National Endowment for the Humanities. Until next time, excelsior.